It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to the Talent Talk Radio Show. And if you're listening live, uh, thank you for, for doing that. But probably most of you are coming in after the fact, but we'll get to that in a second. I have the pleasure of meeting so many of these great leaders uh, out in the business world, uh, in the t- kind of the talent arena. And, you, you know, when I, as I begin to meet them and I begin to talk to them, I realize this would be a great forum to kind of share ideas, talk about different things. Uh, in fact, I was in Chicago yesterday and met some great people there. Maybe we'll have them on the show as well. So, you know, this show really is, as I said, designed to give you that opportunity to listen in on some of the topics that we find interesting, that they're really focused on, that your peers are focused on, and really give you something special to use hopefully down the road. So Talent Talk is live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And you can uh, also access the podcast on if you have an Apple device. Um, or on any device, any platform, as I can get to the internet, you can go to iHeartRadio, uh, and you can also join us there. We're syndicated on that platform as well. So over 340,000 of you turned in last week and listened to a show. We really appreciate all the support. Feel free to share and tell your friends about it, your colleagues. Uh, we love keeping that conversation going, but a big thank you to everyone who's coming in on a regular basis. Uh, if you have any questions for one of my two guests coming up here, Feel free to shoot them over to us live via Twitter. Uh, you can also send the question, I'm sure, after the fact. Uh, they'd be happy to answer the question, and we can keep the conversation going after the show. But go ahead and try to use the at PeopleG2 if you can fit that into the question. Uh, otherwise, just make sure you got the hashtag Talent Talk. My producer, Mike, will monitor those diligently and try to feed me in questions if they come in live. Uh, we have that happen from time to time. We love doing that, kind of throwing a surprise question in for our guests. So. All right, let's uh, go ahead and get to the show. My uh, guest today will be Brad Karsh, the founder and CEO of JB Training Solutions, and then Jill Kopanis. Feeling like there's a couple different ways I could say that last name, but as usual, we'll all find out together how to say her say her last name. So she'll be on the second half of the show. She's the vice president of human resources at Dynamic Dyes. But let's go ahead and get to my first guest, uh, Brad. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thank you so much. It's great to be on. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself uh, your, and your company, JB Training Solutions. Sure. Um, I'm five foot ten. I'm left-handed. Oh, you probably don't want to know that stuff. And you like long I, walks uh, on the beaches and pina coladas? Is that it? Is that the rest of it's going? <laughs> exactly right. No, so uh, JB Training Solutions is a company that does public speaking and does corporate training 
all around the globe. So we work with a variety of different Fortune 500 companies all the way on down to startups and other organizations doing sort of soft skills training. So we do things on how to be a manager and a leader. We do a whole suite of programs on working with different generations, how to work with millennials, how millennials can work with other folks. And then we do a whole suite on communication and presentation skills. Wow, that's a lot of different areas that you are really focusing on. And so is that work mainly where you or someone in your company is going and giving a presentation on that? Or is there more like direct kind of that hands-on, you know, training that's involved? It's usually training. So there's there's five people who do what I do in addition to me, and we work with all sorts of companies, typically coming in doing a half-day program on, for instance, how to deliver feedback or a full-day program on how to present effectively. And we deliver about five to 600 training programs a year, and then occasionally we'll do some public speaking too. So there's a conference or an event where they want maybe a one-hour talk about what it's like to work in a multi-generational workplace. We'll do some of those things too. Sure, sure. And this may be the first time I've ever said these words, but you're actually coming through really hot. So maybe you can <laughs> just, just back that uh, phone away just a, a smidge. That might help us a little bit. We don't want to have distortion on our recording here. No um, usually our guests are so quiet and you have to ask them to start you know, talking louder, but you're doing a great job. Um, uh, it's, a, it's an affliction for sure. And if I keep doing it, by all means, interrupt me. <laughs> So, you know, what do you feel that JB Solutions is really doing that's maybe different um, that can really help businesses more than what maybe other companies in your market and your genre are doing? You know, how are you guys really making that real impact? Sure. Well, it, it, it comes down to a few different things. I think one of, one of the things we talk about is how at JB Training Solutions we try and be chalant in everything that we do. Now, I don't know if you know, Chris, what the word chalant means. Well, I know what nonchalant is, so maybe you should explain it for everybody. It sounds intriguing. I can explain it, yes. Then part of the reason you may not know it is because um, we did make it up. So I happen to be one of the world's most impatient drivers. So I, no matter where I'm going, I feel the urgent need to get there as soon as humanly possible. And uh, I, I've been known to cut through two side streets across an alley to move up one spot in the traffic line. I'll get off the highway and then get immediately back on because Google Maps says I can save 18 seconds. So sadly, I live in a city, Chicago, where you just were, and we have a fair bit of traffic here, just like you do out in Orange County. So driving is always difficult. I don't think you ever want to be in a car with me because I'm racing to get to wherever I need to get to. So one day I'm kind of in downtown Chicago where we have a traffic light on every single block. And I'm sitting at the traffic light, and I'm waiting for the light to change. And I kind of peer across the intersection to see how much time is left, because we have these countdowns, as many cities do, these countdown traffic lights that kind of tell you how much time you have left. And I look across, and it's something like 14 seconds. And in my head, I think, oh, my gosh, 14 seconds. What in the world am I going to do for 14 seconds? And I <laughs> check my email. I get a piece of gum. I kind of twiddle my thumbs. And finally, the light starts to work its way down to 5, 4, 3, and I get all excited because now I get to go. When the light hits two, I start to plot strategy. So I'll, I'll look at the next two or three or four or five lights ahead of me and see what they're doing. If they're all green, I know I have to fly out of that intersection. If they're red, I'm going to kind of lay up short so that I heat, hit each one of them without having to put my foot on the brake. Again, Chris, it's unpleasant to be in a car with me. So uh, finally, the light turns yellow. The minute it turns yellow, I get super excited. But somebody steps in front of me into the crosswalk, into the intersection. And I have been known to, when the light has turned yellow, step into the intersection. But I, I sort of sprint across that intersection because I feel like I have 
I don't know, a contract with humanity that requires me to get to the other side. But this guy does not sprint. He walks as slowly as he possibly can across that intersection. And, and and the light changes green, only I can't go because this, this guy's walking so slowly and and you know, my blood is boiling, my my steam's coming out of my ears for a second. I think, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna teach him a lesson. I'm not gonna kill him, but maybe just clip him or, or let him know that he can't do this. This is basically something that's unacceptable in society these days. But but the calmer side of me prevailed and he walked across the intersection, and, and as I sped away, and I thought to myself, you know what really drove me crazy about that guy? I said, he's so nonchalant. And I said, you know, I'm just the opposite of nonchalant, and my company's just the opposite of nonchalant, and, and hence the term chalant was born, right? That's the opposite of nonchalant. So I, I kind of raced back to the office because I'm, I'm always racing back, and I brought my team together, and I said, you know what we are we, as a company? We are chalant, and he, here's what it means to be chalant. We do things with drive, with meaning, with purpose, with focus. We do them the right way. We do them the way they're supposed to be done. And we do them in a, in a way that people appreciate. So if we work with somebody and, and they say, hey, can you get back to us by Friday? We say, absolutely. And when you're chalant, if they want it by Friday, they're going to get it by Thursday. If they want it by the end of the day, they're going to get it by lunch. And it's not just about doing it quickly. It's about doing it the right way, thinking through it, coming up with extra stuff on top of it. So kind of a long story and I apologize but that's that's I think what sets us apart a lot that's what it means to be chalant well it's a great story I appreciate you telling it and I don't understand why you think that's a problem to drive that way I mean that seems perfectly <laughs> normal to me so uh, yeah, I, with, I do too I don't know what other people yeah. are, are worried about when, when you're in uh, Orange County or downtown LA anywhere in Southern California there's always traffic but there's always a way to maybe save five more seconds by taking some short detour around everything. And, you know, you may sometimes end up in a neighborhood or an area that your passengers may not appreciate, but you can <laughs> save 15 more seconds and definitely get there, you know, a total of an hour, one minute and 30 seconds earlier, which probably doesn't help you once you get there. But, you know, you feel better. But it's still, well, well you know, when, I, when I'm going somewhere, I, the first thing I do is I put it into Google Maps. I find the fastest route. And if it says it's going to take me 38 minutes to get there, to me, that's not how long it'll take me. That's a personal challenge. I have to beat 38 minutes. Right, right. Absolutely. And I just hope that the traffic doesn't get worse on the way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So your focus on, you know, uh, creating more productive, you know, workforces for your clients. But what are some of the areas you focus on to make a company and its workforce more productive? Well, you know, it really does start with one of the things I mentioned before, and that's management. If, if you don't have great leaders, if you don't have powerful managers, if you don't have people that, that individual contributors can look up to, you're going to struggle as an organization. One of the terms that I, that I use a lot, and I certainly didn't come up with it, is people join companies but they leave managers. And I think that's incredibly true. And at a lot of organizations, what happens is people are doing a really good job and their senior management walks up to them and says, hey, you're doing a great job. We want to make you a manager. Now, they may be great at sales or they may be great at engineering or they may be great at radio production, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a wonderful leader of people. And that takes a very specific skill. So one of the areas we really focus on is that, right? So making sure that people do understand how to be great leaders and great managers at all levels, from beginning managers all the way up to seasoned executives. 
the next thing we we spend a fair bit of time on is you know once once you kind of can be a good manager, it's really understanding how people work and act and operate, and that's these days a big focus of that is on generations. So how are Gen Xers different from baby boomers, and how are baby boomers different from millennials, and how are millennials different from globals, which is the generation after millennials? And it's it's really fascinating to hear how different some of these generations are based on how they were raised and whatnot. So we do a fair bit of work in that area. And then the final one is you have to be able to communicate a message. So whether that's written, whether that's verbal, whether that's giving a presentation, whether that's in a one-on-one, being assertive, being powerful, being convincing, being persuasive when you communicate. So, so those are the kind of the areas that we really focus on. And those are areas that we hear on a regular basis, even just on this show and the people I talk to, where companies are struggling, they're always looking for help and uh, trying to, to, you know, I guess just sort of improve that the median worker, right, or that median uh, middle manager. How can you get them to be a per, X percent better? That will Because it has such a transformal effect to the overall company that if your manager's can be 10% better, 20% better, whatever that number may be, and how that impacts everyone else working in the company and impacts your employee, uh, your, uh, your clients, your vendors, everyone is involved in that process. So is that sort of the, 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 the goal for you then to just sort of look at can you make those incremental improvements uh, at, at that level? Yeah, that's what it's really all about. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. And think about it. If you had every manager working 10% better or smarter or faster or more productively or more engaged – it has an extraordinary impact on the bottom line. So you're right. I mean, that is the stuff that is critically important. Now, I know that you uh, co-authored a, uh, a book called Manager 3.0. I uh, don't know if there was a 2.0 or 1.0. or Maybe that was just what <laughs> the crappy things that people were doing before. But it's a millennial's guide to rewriting the rules of management. So how are millennials changing the workplace from your perspective uh, with their management styles? Yeah. So so it's interesting. Um, we just jumped straight to 3.0. So there wasn't a 1.0 or a 2.0. But um, millennials now, if, if you know, there's various different definitions, but roughly 1981 to 1999. So the oldest of them are turning 35 this year. So many organizations, they are leaders, they're managers, they're running teams. And what we looked at in the book is how, in fact, they are maybe a little bit different than previous generations. And there are a bunch of things we talked about, but to me, one of the most fascinating ones was that millennials manage much more collaboratively. So when you think about, and and Chris, I don't know how old you are, I'm definitely not a millennial, so I'm 50, I'm an old Gen Xer, but when I kind of grew up, Gen Xers, baby boomers, the management style was what we all called command and control, meaning if I was the boss, I'm the boss, you guys work for me, you do what I say. But millennials grew up with more clubs, with more teams, with more sports, with more group activities. They're so comfortable working in teams. And they manage, therefore, much more collaboratively than other generations did. And when they take that role of manager, it's fascinating to see the differences in what a collaborative manager is versus command and control. And and one isn't better, one isn't worse, but it is really transformatively different than the way it used to be in terms of how they manage. Yeah, and you're hitting some great themes that we've brought up on this show uh, many times. And 
you know, we've gone in with some guests that have kind of been on the expert side of being for millennials and talking about that exact phenomenon about them being the collaborative, working in groups, um, whether that a lot of it came from school and, and putting people in groups and working in those settings, um, having um, groups provide them feedback um, in those situations. So certainly, uh, and there are great things about that. There are probably also some bad things about that, but uh, you know, that does seem to be the the way things are moving. So, you know, as of then millennials in these leadership positions, do you think it's possible for them to bridge the gap with, you know, sort of the, the, the generations above them or I guess older than them, however you want to put it, to try to be more collaborative? Because it's one thing for them to, to do that with their peer set, uh, maybe one generation outside of that, but to go three or four generations of, outside of that when they're looking for that collaborative process and that, collaborative decision making is that something you think they can do or does that take an organization to uh, maybe have to think about that and talk about that and digest it and get people on board to do that effectively right i mean i I think it is a little bit of kind of meeting in the middle so when i talk to millennials about managing up if you will or working with older generations i always say just because you guys did it one way doesn't mean that the people above you did it that way. And when I'm speaking to older generations, I say, hey, just because you did it that way doesn't mean millennials do. So it's about finding kind of that happy medium. Um, for instance, you know, collaborative management. I always say there are pros and cons to it. The pros is if, if, if I'm a millennial manager or any manager who manages collaboratively, if we have a big decision to make, I might bring my group together and say, hey, what do you all think? And when everyone has a chance to think about it, when everyone has a chance to chime in, when everyone has a chance to share a point of view, when a decision is ultimately made, then you have almost instant and immediate buy-in because people went along with the process of coming up with the decision. So as you can imagine, that's one of the great pros of a collaborative management style. Some of the cons are that process can take a really long time. So... If three people think we should do one thing and three people think we should do another, sometimes we found that a lot of these millennial managers wouldn't kind of draw a line in the sand and say, all right, hey, I know you guys think this, but here's what we're going to do. So they would just extend and extend and extend and not make the decision, and, and, and they were afraid to kind of hurt people's feelings, so they wouldn't make a decision. So, for instance, when I talk about working together, with older generations, I say, hey, it's fine if you want to manage collaboratively or if you want to let your... Millennials sort of do it that way, but give them some parameters. Say, hey, I want you to make a decision, but you have to make it by Wednesday. And even if everyone doesn't agree, it's okay to to do something perhaps that your team doesn't agree with or necessarily find all that palatable. And so if we look at that then – can we make the argument that there might be still room for some of these older models of leadership, whether they're formal and ones that, you know, we've, we've put in place on purpose? Or, you know, I guess you could even say, is, is there a place when command and control is appropriate? Uh, Absolutely. Is that- I mean, to think that it's no longer relevant to me is a bit short-sighted because there is no one right management style. And, and, what I think is critical, and it doesn't matter which generation you are, but especially when you're working with millennials, it's about setting the expectation. So if, let's say, I'm a baby boomer and I have an old-school management style and I'm working with a team of millennials who, who work much more collaboratively, I might say to them, 
hey, I just want to set up, you know, I, I really want you involved in decision making. I definitely want to hear your point of view and perspective. But at the end of the day, I'm accountable, I'm responsible, I'm manager. And there are going to be times when I make a decision that you may not agree with. And the hope is, or my expectation is, that you'll, even if you don't agree with it, go along with it because that's what we do at, as part of an organization like ours. So what I think a lot of older generations maybe do is just assume millennials think that way. Like, well, I said it, so they believe in me, as opposed to realizing that maybe setting that expectation up would really help. Right, right. Well, there's a lot of different ways to do it, and it's going to be interesting. It doesn't feel like there was as much uh, change or much of a shift. It was slow, maybe small, more incremental between generations, if we kind of name them all down the line. But if we start from the oldest generation moving down. But with millennials, it seems like this gigantic shift. Partly of that is is how the kids were raised in education, but a lot of it certainly is technology and how they're interacting with people. Um, so it would be really fascinating to see, will we have incremental changes again for several generations and then possibly another giant, you know, kind of leap across a, a chasm there or will we see large changes as well every generation that kind of comes in the workplace i'm kind of voting for the first one i think that would be what it is but uh well i guess we'll see right yeah we'll definitely see i mean i think first of all every generation loves to complain about the generation before them and say how they're ruining humanity for all mankind so but it does seem like there's more of it. And I don't know if it's, like you said, technology or social media or the fact that news is more available and digestible. But there, there's definitely more about that. But my whole thing is millennials aren't worse. They're not better. They're just different. Like every generation is a little bit different. Yeah, and we, we've had uh, Martin Lennick, who's a Ph.D. on this show before, and he kind of talked about some of his research that really show that millennials have the same – capabilities and the same sort of the same positives and negatives the same abilities and and challenges that everybody else does in being a good leader right in, in going and leading a set of people how they do it what their approach is and all that is where we see the differences but they're just as uh, able to come in as any other generation and to do a good job or to screw it all up um <laughs> as it as anybody else so they're not you know, they might be better with technology. There might be things that we can point to, but they're not better or worse as it comes to leadership based on his research than any other generation. They need the same training, the same support, the same, you know, sort of things in place that you would do for anybody, which I found really interesting. I would have thought that uh, they might have had an edge in some areas or, uh, you know, disadvantage in others, but it really kind of came out about the same. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and that, and that's what I've seen a lot. And there are a few things – I think a lot of it comes down to how they were parented, how they were brought up, what society and culture were like as they were raised versus other generations. I think that has a profound impact on, on certain ancillary things in the marketplace. But at the end of the day, they're still smart, if not smarter. Uh, and, and as you said, that they can definitely be great leaders just like any other generation. Absolutely. So what are some of the things maybe you're seeing as you're in working with co- companies, let's say uh, some of your best clients, uh, best in the terms of uh, they're doing it the best, um, maybe not paying you the best, but doing it the best. Um, so what are those companies doing or what are some things you're thinking about that uh, companies are doing to really attract top talent and, and keep keep themselves competitive you know, in the long run? Yeah, well, a lot of it is changing, if you will, the traditional model and and 
I'm probably not going to say anything that's rocket science at this point, but, you know, I entered the workplace and the things that attracted top talent was we've got a wonderful pension program and, you know, you can qualify for profit sharing 100% after seven years of working. And those types of perks, benefits, attractive devices are obviously, for the most part, obsolete. And what's more interesting is what is the work that I'm going to be doing and how is that going to make a difference with my team, make a difference at the company, and, and conceivably make a difference in the world. And and I'll share with you one quick story, Chris, that I think is really interesting. So before I started this company, I worked at Leo Burnett, which is a big advertising agency in Chicago. We had about 2,000 people working in the office there. And I did all of our recruiting, college recruiting. And when I used to interview students, so this was this was back in like the late 90s, so I was not interviewing millennials yet, but, but Gen Xers. One of the questions I'd ask, not a great question, but an interesting question, is what's your ideal work environment? And for years, I got the same sort of level of responses, which are, oh, I want to work at a big company or a small company. I want to work fast-paced or slow-paced, or I like to work in a group, or I prefer to work individually. And those were, if you will, the range of responses I got. Then in 2002, I started my company, didn't hire anyone for a while, and after about five years, I hired my first college student right out of school. So I interviewed six different students from six different schools. Now, JB Training Solutions didn't have the same recruiting budget that Leo Burnett did, so I interviewed them all over the phone initially. And I asked them, what's your ideal work environment? Now, I hadn't interviewed somebody in about almost 10 years out of college. And the reason I did that was I, if they said, oh, I want to work at a big, fast-paced company. You know, at the time, we had six employees, so that was not going to be the place for them. And I said, what's your ideal work environment? And all six of them basically gave me the same answer in slightly different words. And I said, what's your ideal work environment? They all said, my ideal work environment, I want to work at a company where my contributions are valued and where I have the ability to contribute to the bigger picture. And I thought, Wow. Right? It's totally different. Not big, not small, not fast, not slow, not group or individual. It was all about my role mattered. So I think for millennials, the fact that their role matters. And like I said, it, it doesn't have to be like I'm, I'm saving the world, but it can just be like that spreadsheet I worked on went to the vice president and he presented it to a client. Like, that's really cool. So feeling like they're growing feeling like they're contributing, feeling like they're part of a team, feeling like their role matters. These are the things that are that are important. In addition to, of course, everyone loves flexible work hours and free lunch and all those types of things. But I think it goes deeper than just those superficial perks. I think it goes to the role that they play. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, we're just about out of time, so I want to make sure we ask you the all-important question is how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about uh, JB Training Solutions? Absolutely. Well, the website is uh, jbtrainingsolutions.com. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but it works. And I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Any of those places you can find me, follow me. I'm at Brad Karsh on Twitter or at JBT Solutions. You can check us out there. And my email is bkarsh, K-A-R-S-H, at JB Training Solutions. I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, it's been uh, really interesting hearing some of your thoughts and things that you're working on. Love to have you come back at some point and give us an update. Sounds wonderful. Thanks so much, Chris. It'd be my pleasure. Have a wonderful rest of the day. 
All right. We'll be right back after this uh, quick commercial break uh, with my second guest, Jill Kopanis. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. Welcome back to the uh, Talent Talk Radio Show. That was a really quick commercial break. We just did one, so I almost wasn't ready, but all right, we're good to go. So uh, up next, we have uh, Jill Kopanis. She's the Vice President of Human Resources at uh, Dynamic Dyes. As a reminder, don't forget, you can tweet me some questions. Uh, we can try to spring them on Jill here if you want. Just uh, send them to at PeopleG2. Use that hashtag Talent Talk, and we'll uh, try to work it into the show. But uh, let's go ahead and get to our second guest. Jill, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you're doing um, at uh, Dynamic Dyes. Well, I'm one of those non-traditional people, I guess you could say, that I started my career in uh, retail buying. And uh, I have to tell you that I, when I started that out, I saw the true value um, was in the success of the people in the business. So I kind of transitioned into HR. While a lot of the people listening may have been a traditional HR person, I am a non-traditionalist, and I tend to do a lot of things kind of. The word that everyone uses nowadays is think outside the box. I like to say we're just kind of reinventing the box. Um, so I, I am Vice President of Human Resources for Dynamic Dyes. do a lot of national speaking. I've had the privilege of speaking at SHRM for the last several years, four different times. And just because I didn't want to get bored, I decided to go back to college at the, as a non-traditional student, I won't say at a later stage of life, and get my master's in organizational leadership. So that's kind of uh, some of the background um, that brings me to talking with you today. Well, it's exciting. It sounds like you have a lot of things you're going to be able to tell us, uh, a lot of things to talk about that we may not be thinking of. So let's go ahead and, and dive right in. Uh, I know you have a lot of experience in HR. I mean, certainly if you've been speaking at uh, SHRM that many times, uh, uh, you have a lot to share. So, And you've been with your company um, in the capacity of HR since 1999, so you don't meet a lot of people that have been with their companies that long. What what have been some of the challenges you have had to take on over the course of this, you know, 17 years that you've been there at the company that have allowed you to really kind of grow your skills and become the strategic leader you are today? Well, you know, Chris, you're right, because um, to be somewhere almost 17 years was is even amazing for me. I never thought I would stay anywhere 17 years, but the culture um, is the reason I'm here. The president of the company has set the culture and supports HR. And I think culture is the real driver of, of any of the companies. But to specifically kind of talk about some of the challenges, I will tell you that when I started here, I mean, I literally had to build the, uh, the department to be seen as a strategic team. We were literally, when I walked in the door, HR was the make everybody happy, make sure they get paid, call the temp agency if we need a warm body, throw the company picnic department. And I think um, some people can still relate with that today, that there are challenges in trying to make 
HR strategic partner, and that was my biggest challenge. I mean, just to get, for lack of better words, because I don't like to use the cliche, but get that seat at the table. And it's it was truly a building process, one challenge at a time. I think probably a lot of your listeners can relate to that because HR isn't always seen as strategic. Here in uh, Toledo, I lead a, a network of HR Department of Ones. It's an informal network for them to just get together and talk about their problems. And I know that in talking with them, one of their biggest struggles is we're a one-person department, we're a smaller company or a small to mid-sized company, and it's just hard to get our department seen as strategic. And I always tell them, grab onto one thing, one thing at a time, and make it strategic, and then move on to the next thing. And I, I think that's what everybody needs to think about doing. I know here, it was for me, it's just getting them to say, you don't need to just hire temps. Let's start sourcing for top talent who may already be employed. You know, let's get rid of that culture that we have and redesign it within the company. But that meant we had to train managers to, for interview skills and have ownership in the process and develop recruiting processes. We got through that. It was like next step onboarding, um, there was no onboarding process. It's here's your paperwork, there's your department. Um, so there's been a lot of challenges in just building what some companies already had as a norm, coming on board 17 years and building that to the point that we could start doing major strategic programs because we had that foundation. Well, and this is great advice that you're giving, um, just sort of that one step at a time. I can imagine, you know, someone in that position that you described, you know, early on coming into a company where you just need to do payroll, you need to make sure the handbook's done, you know, plan the picnic, whatever those sort of tactical yeah. things are, um, and not the strategic. And so your advice, if I'm kind of paraphrasing it correctly, is, you know, get get yourself in, into into that meeting one meeting at a time. Get your you know talk about those challenges one thing at a time instead of going to the CEO or whoever and saying you know I want to be in all these strategic conversations. I want to you know change everything in one swoop. It's start working on it one at a time, and next thing you know, not only will you be in all those different meetings and those sit, sitting at the table far more often, you'll just start being expected to be sitting there all the time and having those conversations because you've been there so many other times. Is that Am I kind of phrasing that correctly? Exactly, Chris, exactly. I have people who have said to me, you know, I, I wish I was in your role. I wish I could do what you do. And I tell every one of them, oh, you should have seen me 17 years ago. You would not have wished that. But I do say... It's one step at a time, one project at a time. You cannot recreate a division to be strategic overnight. So definitely it's a process, and it's going to take several years, and it's just one step at a time. You know, once we just even got the basics of this is how you actually hire to get top talent in here, and this is how we're going to onboard people so that it's no longer just paperwork we're talking about culture. We're talking about sharing about quality and safety and actually having the new employee meet corporate leaders. It was like developing that whole onboarding process. Once you got that foundation, like I said earlier, then I could start doing major projects. And one of the first things we did about the time we had built that foundation of truly being strategic 
was about the time medical costs started just skyrocketing 10 years ago, and I chose not to shift my employees to a high-deductible plan. I chose not to start kicking spouses off the plan. And instead, I said, okay, we've got a culture here now. We've spent years building a culture, and we need to test it. Did we, did we build it right? Can we really engage our employees? Uh, and we did and built a whole employee education and ownership program around medical cost savings that over 10 years saved like $4 million. But that was only a success because all those baby steps and building HR to be the strategic partner they were was the credibility that said, okay, maybe HR is strategic. Let them go ahead and run this program. Yeah, and and so you've started to kind of get into a little bit of the, some of the things you've done with a, maybe with a good culture. Can you maybe talk about what are some of the things you've done to actually develop that culture uh, to get it to that place where you can have those conversations and you know in, involve your your you know your really engaged employees to help you save four million dollars. You know what are some of the things that you feel like you're doing on a regular basis to kind of get them to that point. The very first thing is, well, I would say to anybody, you have to recognize the culture that exists within your company. And every company has a unique culture, and that's outside of just a culture of engagement. There is a unique culture. And for us here, we already had a culture of employees owning their job. This company was started from the ground up 48 years ago. And many of those employees at the time were still with us. So they owned having grown this company to the size they are today. So I knew my culture that I had a group of employees that really wanted to make a difference. It's just we hadn't, we kind of were still in that parental role where the employee was the child and the managers were the parent and we were kept telling them what to do. And we finally rolled out and said, okay, we're in this program together. We're either going to sink or swim when it comes to medical cost. And when we reached out to our employees and told them what the problem is, instead of keeping the problem in the corporate boardroom, and told them what we thought the solution might be, but we needed them to do it with us, that started to turn the culture around and started the process of helping to start controlling health care costs. I mean, we literally went to them and said, look, here's where our medical costs are. Here's where they're going to be. Here's what you're going to have to own in it. This is how you can read your EOBs and start controlling costs. This is how you can save costs on drugs. I mean, obviously more in-depth than I can explain here today, but we fed them the facts. We told them the problem. We didn't keep the problem in the boardroom for managers to solve. We engaged the employees in the process and started to get them to own it. And that's out of the course of that was a $4 million savings. And I think a lot of companies need to realize that we have pretty smart employees out there. And maybe we don't always need to solve the problem in the boardroom. Maybe we need to tell the employees what's going on and, and um, have them help solve the problem with us. That's great advice. I mean, at the very least, getting their input, help, helping them understand what the problem is, is, is a great start. And if you can get them really engaged to, to help you find solutions. I mean, if you're hiring great people, 
you should have a bunch of smart people who can help you think about things in ways you never thought of. Um, exactly. And, you know, and that's just a, 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 you know, great way to do it. I mean, there's always challenges and, you know, how much of that can you do and how much can you take away from what other people's, you know, sort of responsibilities are from a day-to-day basis. But usually if it's something impacting the company, like kind of what you're referring to, it is just so vital to get your your company, your employees, your teams, your departments to really be engaging and talking about those things and bringing back what, you know, are we even really talking about the right problem, right? Do we even have all the right data? Do we really understand what the issue really is and then how do we fix it? Um, that first one I find companies don't always do a great job of is really understanding, is this really the question we're supposed to be asking, right? And and when they look for the solutions, the blinders have been on so long that are they going to find the right solution? Where when you don't know something about a problem because you've never dealt with it, you don't necessarily know all of the things you're going to eliminate. You just keep guessing at them. Meaning, for example, if you as a leader have been dealing with this problem before, you go, oh, we've tried that before. It doesn't work. Well, maybe it will work this time, but we stop that thinking process. Or I think when you engage your employees into a process they haven't been in before, they don't know what won't work, so they'll try anything, and it might work that time. Right. Absolutely. Well, maybe what are some of the things you might say an organization to consider if they're struggling to really develop a successful plan for an employee engagement? I mean, the simple answer might be, well, ask your employees, but are there other things that you might you know, suggest companies do if they're struggling in that area? You know, I love talking about employee engagement. Actually, that was one of the programs I did at SHRM two years ago. And the one thing I always say is when it comes to engagement, remember it's not a buzzword. It's not a survey. It's not a program. It is truly about creating a culture. And companies need to remember it's a culture, not a program. I always love the saying, um, managing only for profit is like playing tennis with your eye on the scoreboard and not on the ball. You cannot win a game of tennis without watching that ball. And the same thing with our employees. We can't win just running everything by the spreadsheets. We have to run things by our employees, engage our employees. Um, And I think when we remember that, we start to companies who are struggling to develop a successful engagement plan, they start to see that to do it successfully, engagement needs to be embraced and driven by leadership. Um, It's kind of like when you build a house, If you build a house without a foundation, you know the first storm it's going to blow away. We've had tornadoes here recently in Ohio, so I can guarantee you that probably would have happened. But the same is true with engagement. If you, if companies are building a foundation of engagement without putting leaders first and always just focusing on employees, first issue they have at work, the first storm that comes through, all those efforts are going to go away. So first of all, Companies need to realize, build a foundation of engagement with your leaders first, and then start reaching out to your employees. I think what we do is we need to drop the word employee from gauge engagement and call it leadership-driven engagement, because the ownership really kind of is on leadership, but we've segregated that, 
we've taken things like we say meetings are for management only or communicate this to your employees and we've unintentionally segregated management from employees and then we take the word employee and put it on the word engagement and we put the ownership of engagement by wording on the employees. So companies need to say, you know what, the focus is my leaders. I've got to get them to engage it, to recognize it starts with them, and then it will drive through the company to our employees. Absolutely, and that's a fantastic way to kind of categorize it. I almost think of uh, you know the military about kind of the process they have where, you know, we we may not we may not want to adapt all the command and control things that that are in there, but certainly from a communication standpoint, they have a process in place where, you know, a more formalized process where leaders are responsible talking to other leaders, and ultimately it goes down to the to the lowest leader who is in charge of making sure that those people inside that their regiment, their department, whatever it may be, understand and know what's happening and are engaged and and happy and healthy and all those things. So we don't we're not as structured or not as organized in that manner inside you know private companies it always seems a bit hodgepodgey word of mouth they sort of just think some people seem to know other people don't have a clue we give some training to to some leaders not to others and so i love this kind of term of leadership driven engagement um it really uh, that's a great way to phrase it so thank you for sharing that with us and another thing I, I think tying into that, as you were talking about kind of having a formalized process, obviously not like the military, but, you know, when people think about certain functions that they think are employee functions or employee engagement functions, recruiting, onboarding, um, performance management, employee recognition, everybody seems to think of that as, well, that's HR. And... They have to remember those are leadership-driven activities. You know, managers can do the recognition programs for their employees, not just HR. Management can get involved in the onboarding process, not just HR, because I think if our employees see management owning part of the recognition program, then they feel like it came from their manager, not HR. Same with onboarding. It's like, wow, my manager's involved with me during the onboarding process, Right from the start, you know, my I'm, I'm feeling engaged in this company already. So we have to remember there's all sorts of avenues leaders can get involved, but they have to own it first and really want to make it a successful part of the company. I, I totally agree. So, given your experience, I'm imagining you've tried some some different uh, programs and some different uh, ways of looking at things. Uh, this is an area that we always see a lot of disagreement about, but where do you see uh, the most effective um, response from from employees when it comes to how you motivate them and how you reward them? Do, do, you, do you see some kind of similar things that tend to work really well and others that don't? Well, yes and no. And I, I have an idea I will share with you that I that everybody seems to love and it works for all sorts of personalities, but I'd like to go back and answer your question first with, I think we all need to recognize everybody's different, so when it comes to what do employees respond to most, I think we need to remember that when we make programs, everybody 
is motivated differently. Like if you go back to the disc style, there's a style that some people like praise. Thank you is enough. Just tell me thank you is all I need. Some people like public praise. Well, other people hate public praise. Just tell me in private. And some employees like money, while others want time off. So we have to remember the key is understand your employees and what their individual needs are, not just as a whole company. Because I don't think there's any one-size-fits-all reward program out there. So one of the keys is know your employees, know what they like, and then reward them based on that. And there's other times you just have to know your company as a culture. I mean, our group, I kind of like it to the movie Field of Dreams, build it and they will come. I know my company as a whole, it's feed them and they will come. Give them pizza for a quality month, they'll make the goal. I mean, we've had managers grill steak lunches because they exceeded production goals. It's like as a whole, I know what my company needs or employees want. But I also know that individually, each person wants to be rewarded differently. So what is the purpose of the reward? Let them know why they're getting it and be consistent. I think one of the things we have to remember in our companies is we're not always consistent. One manager is really good at rewarding, and another manager just isn't good at that. Um, and so employees feel slighted. And we have to remember to try and be consistent what we do to recognize employees throughout the, our com- companies. But one, I said, Chris, I wanted to share an idea when you were talking about how people respond to motivational rewards. This is one that I found all of my employees respond to no matter what their needs are. I do this program called a brick and a buck, and the slogan is build a better company one brick at a time. And we simply made bricks out of colored paper that have the slogan, building a better company one brick at a time. We put the employee's name on it and what they've been recognized for, and it goes the brick goes on this long wall in the employee entrance hallway. We first started this out with just a piece of paper, just the brick. Managers could recognize employees, and they were getting recognized for doing something really, whatever they did, helped the customer out, improved their quality, found a better purchasing source to save the company money. Whatever they did, they got recognized. It was just a piece of paper. And sometimes I thought, is it really going to make a difference? Well, one day our national sales manager had a new customer in the building showing him around. The customer said, what is this on your wall? Sales manager explained what it was. At that time, one of my employees was walking by, and the customer said to the employee, do you have a brick on this wall? And you have to imagine there was at least 200 bricks up on this wall. She said, why, yes, I do. And she walked right over to her brick and showed him, this is my brick. I'm being recognized by the company. It was a piece of paper. So I think when people say I don't have a budget for things, they do. They just have to be figure out how to motivate their employees and reward them. Um, and taking off on that, the next time we introduced it, we gave them a brick and a buck. You get a brick, we give you a buck. It was a dynamic dies buck that we created. And once they saved 25 bucks, they could turn it in 
and ask for a gift certificate from anywhere they wanted. So now the reward was individual to what they wanted. So there's creative ways to think about how do I motivate my employees, how do I reward them, and how do I make sure it's meaningful for them. I think we just need to put ourselves out there and get a little bit more creative to engage our employees. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, getting down here at the end here, I want to make sure we ask one of our favorite questions, and that is, uh, what book are you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading, um, actually, I am rereading one of the tried and true books that everybody's probably read already, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, um, mm-hmm. because I'm, it's, it ties so incredibly well with disc training, to your style training, and we're working with our leaders right now to tie the two together of, First, understand your style and the style of your employees, and then tying it to utilizing your strength, turn it into an emotional, intelligent skill set for leadership success. And even if your readers have already, if your listeners have already read that book, I highly say read it again. You're going to get so much out of it the second time. Yeah, it's a great book, and I love that you've mentioned DISC a few times. I, I, it's a program that I, I enjoy a lot. Um, and, and think, you know, companies can, it's a pretty straightforward way to, to, to add in some, um, understanding and help people understand themselves a bit better. So those are great little programs. Um, how can people get a hold of you or learn more about your company if they're interested in working with you, for you? Uh, what's the best way to do that? Um, they can do me directly at my email address here at Dynamic Dyes. It's Jill underscore K, just the letter K, at Dynamic Dies, D-I-E-S, dot com. Sounds like you can uh, visit dynamicdies.com as well if you're interested in uh, maybe applying or if you want to uh, have them uh, as a uh, possibly to show up and be a client. So, Jill, thank you so much for joining me today. We've, we've learned a lot. I know we didn't even barely scratch the surface, so we'd love to have you come back at some point and we can keep going with the conversation. That would be great. All right. Thank you, everyone, listening today, and uh, hopefully you gain something that will impact your own career in a positive way. Next week, I'll have Ryan um, Edis, the Chief Experience Officer at Ryan Edis and Associates, and Eileen uh, McDar. She's the uh, Chief Energy Officer. That's a new title. I'm not sure I've ever heard. Chief Energy Officer for the Resiliency Group, uh, who will join me on the show. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.